guys. Welcome back to our teaching in the book of John. Now, if you haven't looked at the introduction that we did in the last video uh, concerning the what the purposes of John is all about and a lot of things of that nature, go back and take a look at it. It will be very helpful to help us to understand why John wrote his gospel. And with that in mind, John's gospel is unique, different from Matthew, Mark and Luke. Again, go check out their previous video. But John has one primary theme, or sometimes you hear me say purpose, but the theme of the book of John is to show, to prove that Jesus is more than man, that Jesus is God by his very nature. Now, when we say God by his nature, that simply is to, simply is to say he is God in totality. He is God completion. And sometimes I understand how, because it was confusing to me at first, how to meld these two things together. That how can he be, is he half God, half man? It was very difficult for me to understand how that Jesus could be completely God and completely man at the same time. That's why we call him 100% God and 100% man. Therefore, what John does, and we can see snippets of this in the other Gospels, but what John purposely does is he brings to the fore the fact, even in the beginning, that's what we call John 1, 1 and 18, chapter 1, verses 1 through 18, the prologue of John. He brings it to the forefront, his primary purpose in writing his gospel that Jesus is not only the man, human being, the man, Messiah, but he is also God in every way. But he is a God who has set aside those divine prerogatives. When you hear me say divine prerogative, it means having the power that God would exercise of, of omniscience, knowing all things omnipresence, being everywhere at the same time, and omnipotent, exercising all power. Jesus had these powers and they were his, but Philippians chapter two, he voluntarily laid them aside so that he could function as a slave, that is as a servant to God the Father to become the human Messiah and to become an offering for sin. So completely God, but he is that member of the Godhead, second member, God the Father, God the Son, Jesus, God the Holy Spirit. But he is that second member of the Godhead who plays this specific role in salvation. That is to live and give his life as a ransom for his people. So he remains God, but in order to bring about salvation according to the plan of God, he had to become a man at the same time, remaining fully and completely God. So in saying all of that, that's what John wants us to understand. Not that Jesus is simply the Messiah, the Lamb of God, in the sacrifice. Indeed, he is, but he is also God Almighty. And it is a beautiful thing how we can see this in both the writings of John 
in John's gospel as well as Revelation. And even when we look at first uh, the epistle of John, that is first John, but we're not going into all of those things. So now let's get into our teaching for today. Now, I had planned on dealing with the prologue, which is verses one through 18. Okay. And the prologue, as I just told you, basically introduces us to the purpose of John's gospel to show how God became a man and dwelt among the elect of God to show them the very nature of God. And so <laughs> that's basically the idea of verses one, one through 18. But it is impossible for me to do that in one video, especially because of verse number one. So therefore, today in this teaching, we are only going to deal with John one and one. And that is with respect to verse 14. That is verse one in the beginning was the word. And then verse 14, the word became flesh. Okay, so we have to bring those. We are going to bring those two principal ideas into focus. But because of the importance of the very first verse of John one and one, this video will be dedicated only to verse one, because that is the very mindset of John's entire gospel. He is attributing something. He is saying something about Jesus, who he is say talk about call the word Jesus. And we all know Jesus, the word, but he will be attributing something unique and special about Jesus in a way. None of the other writers, when they begin to talk about Jesus, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, and John, I'm sorry, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, none of the other writers spoke about Jesus to indicate his primary thought. What is that thought that Jesus is God? So we're going to look at only verse number one, because it is with this foundation that John begins his gospel. Okay. All right. So let's just simply start it. And it simply says in the beginning was the word and the word was with God and the word was God. Now that is our reading in English. And, and when you start dealing with, I know a, a lot of different people and certain other denominations, they struggle with this whole issue. But the point that John lays before us is that the word was God. So let's just simply look back at it and we're going to break it down. We're going to take it into pieces and for this, and we, we may do this in other accounts of John's gospel as well. We're going to look back on our Greek text to give us the dynamic understanding of just what John is trying to say. So now let's just simply look at it. So as it says, in the beginning was the word. Now, when we look at our Greek text, it says, in our kain ha lagos. So, so all it's simply saying is this, in beginning. Now, the first thing that I want you guys to see when it says NRK, that is when we translate in the beginning, the first thing that I want you to see is there is no definite article present. What do I mean when we say definite article? We simply mean the, the, the. And always remember the idea of the definite article is that it points to something that is specific. That is how it functions, not not to a chair somewhere out there in a group of chairs, but the chair that is a specific chair. 
that one in particular. So when John begins and he says in Arche, in Arche, there is no definite article, even though we translate it with a definite article, the, we translate it what? In the beginning, but that's not what's in the Greek text. So what John is inferring is, <clears throat> he's bringing in the same exact idea of Genesis one and one in referring to God of the Genesis one and one. And, and in the Greek text, it, it basically simply says this, and we, I'm gonna show you the Greek text too. It says, Elohim. that is in beginning, and then you got the verb bara, which means to create it, Elohim, God. In the beginning, God created. Now, again, in the Hebrew text, we translate it in the beginning. But when we look at the vowel pointings, and I don't want to get into all of that, of the Hebrew text, that is Bereshith. That's that particular word. It is not definite. It is what we call indefinite. Indefinite is the very opposite of definite. What is definite again, guys? Definite means the. Indefinite means in beginning. It means know thee. So what is both John, and John is clearly referencing, reflecting on Genesis 1 and 1, in, in beginning, and Genesis, in beginning, he basically is saying the timeless past. In the time, and, and, I, and I probably shouldn't even use the word time, but that's how I, as a human being, refer to it. But we can simply say, in the dateless past or the idea becomes in eternity past. And so that's what notice Genesis one and one in eternity, but some, sometime in eternity past, God created the heavens and the earth. And so what do we have here? We have the similar idea. Now let's go back to John. In the beginning, that is, in the beginning, in the, in the eternal, dateless past, what? Now, here's that verb, ain. Now, let's talk about that. That verb, ain, comes from amy. And we're not going to get into a whole lot of Greek grammar and grammar you to death. But what I want you to understand is, it is in the imperfect tense. The imperfect tense simply says, it is an action that began and that remains uncompleted. So the idea is it is a continuing action. It is a what? Continuing action. So when he uses that imperfect form of a mean here, that is ain in the in beginning was the word. So remember the, the subject is halagos, the word. What is he saying about the word? The word eternally existed in the dateless past. The word itself, by even looking at that verb, that imperfection of Amy, imperfect verb, the word had no moment of its creation. It always existed. And the word, as it is in the imperfect, it is an in incomplete thing. And when we're talking about the incompletion, that, that, that which is not complete, the existence. So therefore, what can we see? The word has no beginning 
and the word has no ending. That is simply to say the word has eternally and will eternally exist. And there is one being who has always existed, exists of himself, which is the very root of God's name itself, to exist of himself, and will always exist because of his own nature. And that is God. God is eternal, eternally existing in the past, eternally existing in the future. And this is what John says clearly about the Logos, the word. Okay. And we already know what we already know that the word, that's why I say we bring into verse 14, the word is made flesh. The word becomes a man. We see him and know him as the person of Jesus of Nazareth. So what is John saying about Jesus of Nazareth? That he existed in eternity past. And remember, to have such an attribute, only God can have that attribute. And John is going to make that even clear to us as we move through the verse. But now let's get to the next section. So, in the dateless, timeless past existed the word. And here he uses ha-logos. And there is a definite article here. The definite article here is functioning as, that means ha-logos, the word is functioning as the subject. In the beginning was the word. What existed in the beginning? The word. Okay, but anyway. So here, what do we have? The word logos that is being used here. Now, I don't want to get into a lot of yammering about so many things that you may have heard or that was attributed to why John used the word logos. John, John was a Jew brought up in the times and customs of first century Israel as a Jew. John was not Greek. And so therefore, as John is using the word logos, he is not using the word logos in any sense of Greek intent. That is when we bring in all of the things that were known about the logos of the Greek time. So I don't want to get into all of that. So let me simply tell you why John chose this word. And it is a very simple, it is because of translation. Okay. In the Old Testament, that is in the Hebrew of the Old Testament, this word would be devar. The word devar means word, matter, or thing. Word, matter, or thing. Devar. That's that word in the Hebrew. Okay. Then of course we understand that what happened and we can't get into all of the history. We know that, but Judea, the Judah, ended up being enslaved by the will of God because of their disobedience, because of their idolatry into Babylon. And therefore they adopted Aramaic language, the Aramaic language, even lettering entered the Hebrew culture. And so the word came moved from Davar Hebrew to the Aramaic Memra. So the word is Memra in the Aramaic. And that's what you'll see. Uh, some even argue that Jesus spoke Aramaic during this time. But that's an argument for another day. So from Hebrew uh, uh, in the in the Old Testament times, 
before the Babylonian dispersion unto the time of the Babylonian dispersion. Memra is the word Aramaic. And now we also know what happened. The times of Alexander the Great. What happened with Alexander the Great? He spread Greek culture and language throughout the, uh, uh, the Eastern world at that particular time. And that's what we see uh, in Jesus's time, the Greek culture that is so prevalent, the Roman Greco, Roman and Greek culture, both Roman and uh, Israeli culture were, were um, influenced by the Greek culture. All right. That's what we call it. Hellenistic, Hellenistic, Greek influence. But so therefore with this Greek influence culture and remember, even the Old Testament was translated into Greek because of the dominance of the Greek culture slash Greek language. So the Old Testament Septuagint, remember it's the Septuagint. The Old Testament was translated into the book that became known as the Septuagint, which was the Greek translation of the Old Testament. Why, once again, because of the prevalence of Greek, Greek culture, Greek language. And so therefore, what does John do? What, what does John do? He uses a word that translates from the Hebrew, Aramaic, to the Greek. Why? Because the Greek is the basic language, traveling language, world language, language of the day. And that's why John simply chooses logos. He is not trying to intimate all of those pagan ideas about Greek culture, Greek understanding, Greek wisdom, and Greek. John is Jewish, and all he is simply doing is giving one word to another word translation from Hebrew, Devar, to Memra in Aramaic, to Logos. They all mean the same thing. Now, concerning the Logos or concerning the Devar, sometimes you will see like in places in Genesis, the word of the Lord or appeared unto Abraham or the word of the Lord appeared or the word of the Lord came unto him. Now, all I'm trying to say in all of this without getting into a long dissertation is this. The rabbis did not quite understand the word, whether it was something that was being mediated by God verbally, that is God would speak to a man or even through a man, God would speak the word or somehow God would manifest himself in presence. God would show himself through his word. The word would take on the personal qualities of God. And that's what John is trying to intimate. Some of the concepts of the rabbis concerning Devar, Logos, Logos, same idea, same word. Devar, Hebrew, Logos is same word in Greek. This thing about the word, the word seems more than just some type of a verbal communication, but it seems to be an expression of God himself. So here John brings that application in how the word is not just simply something that God speaks or how God communicates or the written or verbal communications of God, but that the word embodies the very essence 
of God himself. So what did John say? In the beginning was the word, not some verbal expression, but a part of God. That's why you see why the next part, the word was God. That's why it makes so much sense. But let me slow it down. So that's so now we got the issue of the logos. What he meant by that. And again, notice it has the definite article there. The logos simply saying the logos, that expression of God was in the beginning. And it's more than this is more than let me just add this than proverbial wisdom. Like you'll see the in book of Proverbs talk about how wisdom is personified. But notice even there, wisdom is personified as a woman. Therefore, therefore, the wisdom of Proverbs is an attribute of God. You got it? The wisdom of Proverbs, that you see in the book of Proverbs, is an attribute of God being spoken of as a desirable woman, as a woman who a man should naturally desire. Proverbs, wisdom. Wisdom is what a man should naturally desire, the wisdom of God. But anyway, so here the word deals with basically the very essence and embodiment of what it is to be God that existed in a way that only God can exist. How? Eternally from the beginning, having no time to begin, having no time to end as we bring in that imperfect verb aim. So in the verb, so he was, that word logos was in the beginning and the word was with God. Now in the Greek, it says, kalha logos in prostonthon. And the word was prostonthon. That is to be facing God. That's the idea. That's why they say the word was with God. So, and I, okay, so let me slow it down again here. When it says the word was with God, there is a definite article with both the word ha lagos and God. Tone thing on ha definite article the tone same thing. It's just in the accusative, and I don't want to get into a bunch of Greek, but it's in the accusative case. Tone the God. So it says and the word was with the God, and the reason that we see. The definite article used on both the word and God is because it, it is drawing a distinction between the two. It is saying there is one entity, the word, and another entity, God. The word and God. And the rest of that sentence, what, what did the word do? And the word was again that's an imperfect verb that is used when it says aim that is always always in the presence of god uh, and uh, okay just think about what, what this means how can you be always in the presence of god let's talk about one attribute of god he has always existed always he has no beginning the only way to be always aim in the presence of God is that you must have always existed. And who bears this attribute of eternal existence alone? 
God. So even as you work through the text and the Greek of the text, it is building the strong, solid case and foundation that the word, that's what, and the word was God. But anyway, we'll get to that. Strong foundation that Jesus is completely, fully, always has, always will be God. What happens? Verse 14, that word became flesh. We knew him as Jesus of Nazareth. But anyway, so, and the word, uh, ain prostion was dwelling. The idea is it deals, it, it gives a sense of intimacy and the word was with God. That's why Jesus was saying that he was always with the father. The father always delighted in him in the bosom of the father. The father always was loving him. It gives us an indication of intimacy and relationship. The word was with God. That word, one entity, was with God. And then it finally says, we say, and the word was God. But in the Greek, it says, and ka theos and halagos. And God was the word. So it's case backwards in how we translate it, but we translate it that way so that we can understand it. So what is the final point? And now when it says, remember I told you earlier in the, in the middle section, when it says, and the word was with the God. The reason why I gave you those two definite articles, ha and tone, that simply is the, that simply is the, is to let you see two separate distinct entities. What entities? The word and God. Two separate. But now when we get to the third part of this statement, and katheos, and God was the word. Now notice here, when we look at theos, it has no definite article. It again, what? It has no definite article. And now look at the word logos. It has a definite article. Ha, ha logos. So one, the theos does not have the definite article, but the, I'm sorry, ha logos, the word has the definite article. This is extremely, extremely important and lays down that strength of foundation that John is trying to give us. So what is John trying to say? And again, let me touch on that verb, ain, imperfect. All throughout this verse, he keeps using that imperfect verb. What again is so important about the imperfect verb? Something that has always been, it has, it is it's somewhere in the time that's past, it has been, and in the future, it has no completion. It is just something that is simply in existence. And this we can, con we can attribute to the person of God. God has always existed, past as well as present. That's what, so the beauty of that imperfect verb that ties all of this together in beginning, ain. The word, the word existed in the past and he will always exist. And the word was with God, always dwelling with God. And God's being is what? God's being is timeless. And then he says, and God, that imperfection, it always remains. It always was and it always will remain the same. And the word was God. Now, let's go back to the final point here. 
Remember I told you about the absence of the definite article in the last section and God was the word. The, remember the first definite article used in the middle, in the middle part. And um, when it says halagos ain't proston they own, that is halagos, the word, ha, definite article, the, and tone they own, the God, okay? To make you see two separate entities. You got it? But when we get to the final section, the definite article is not, John did not include the definite article with theos. And this is because theos is being used in a substantival, attributive form. Okay, don't worry about it. I'll explain it. So, and the word, that's why we, that's why we translate it, and the word was God. He did not say, and the word, because sometimes, sometimes in the absence, in the absence of the definite article, you can be, it, this, this can be used as in, in an unspecific way, a God. And the word was a God. But of course, John is not saying the word was a God. John is a Jew monotheistic. John did not believe in many gods because if we use it in an indefinite sense, that is without the definite article, the, and call it a God, you are saying that the word is a God amongst other gods. But the whole idea of the Jewish mindset, what is the greatest of all scripture? Deuteronomy 6 and 4. Hear you, O Israel, the Lord our God is one Lord, one God. We only have one God. And so therefore the religion, and it's not, now this is not even to be argued about, of the Jewish people from the Mosaic covenant is monotheistic, one God. So John is not attributing Jesus in some sort of a pantheon amongst other gods, but here, the reason for the absence of the definite article here, as I just told you, is it is being used substantively, that is, to attribute something. Attribute simply means this. And I'm sorry, guys, if I'm saying it in a difficult way. It means the word that I've been telling you about. Let me tell you something about the very nature of the word. And that's why he does not use the definite article because I'm not trying to tell you about God and the word like I did in that midsection, the God, how the word was dwelling alongside, dwelling with God, two separate. Uh, now I'm trying to tell you something about the word. That's why I said to attribute something. What are you trying to say about the word, John? Because the definite article is not there that's why we that's why we know that John is telling us something about the nature. Let me say it one more time. This is your key. John is telling us something about the nature of the word because he has left off the definite article. What are you trying to tell us about the word, the very nature of the word? The word was God. So therefore, in the very first verse, John 
tells us something about the word. He tells us, number one, the word eternally existed in the beginning was the word. Number two, he tells us how, with whom did the word exist eternally? And the word was with God for all eternity past. And then he finally tells us attributed something that makes sense. It ties it all together. And the word by his very nature was God. That simply means everything that makes God the father, God, that's exactly who Jesus is. That's exactly who Jesus was in the beginning. He remains even that. He just, okay, I don't want to do no preaching, but he simply began to play a role of salvation, a role in redemption when he took flesh. But his true nature is and the word was God. Katheos ain't ha logos. And God, the very nature of what makes God, God, that's exactly what the word is. And that's what we see that same idea when Paul speaks about Jesus in the book of Philippians once again, who is the very image of God and what he is trying to portray. Same thing. L let's look at it this way. If you saw God, the father, and if you saw Jesus, God, the son, you couldn't tell the difference because everything that made God, the father, God, it was Jesus. And that's John's final point. So the very first verse, we're going to stop right here. The very first verse in the gospel of John, John is trying to tell us one thing about Jesus, the very nature of Jesus we know, yes, he becomes a man. Yes, he is the Messiah, Savior, King of the Jewish people, even Savior of the world, Savior of those who believe in him. But there is so much more to him than when he became flesh. There is so much more to him than his incarnation. Incarnation simply means to take on flesh. He existed before flesh. And how did he exist? And what was he? The same thing he was when he walked the earth. God almighty. That's why verse 14 clinches it. Tell us about, you already told us about the words eternal existence and the words of uh, a relationship with the father and that the word himself was God too, just like the father sharing the same being of God. You told us that wonderful thing. That's why verse 14 says, and guess what? The most amazing thing happened. God, the word became flesh. All right, guys, thanks for joining me with that. We're going to stop right there. And, and next time that we come in, we're going to continue in because so the rest of it up until about verse number five is going to kind of speak to this same idea. But what was most important for us to do here is, is take verse number one and lay the very foundation, a strong, unshakable foundation to John's opening sentence, his opening statement about the person and the nature of Jesus. He is God in every way. And one of the most beautiful things, okay, I'm done with all of that. 
But one of the most beautiful things that I personally like about the gospel of John, that's why I, I just love gospel of John. I had struggles with trying to understand these things until, of course, time and learning and blah, 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 blah. And to appreciate, and I would always have doubts as, you know, was Jesus really God? And then I would kind of make Jesus like a secondary God, like God the Father, then Jesus is under him. He may be God, but he ain't like God the Father because he himself has to answer to God. I had to understand through what God had given us in the scripture. That's what see, we wouldn't know. If God didn't give us a scripture, we wouldn't understand it that Jesus became all of this. He became all of this as he played a role in redemption. God the Father acts as God over all in the role of saving the elect of God. God the Son acts as the one who has to take flesh. Why? Number one, he has to live that righteous life. He has to compete. He has to be obedient in all things so that his righteousness can be attributed to us. And number two, he had to suffer the holy, righteous wrath and indignation of the father. In other words, what did Paul say? For the wages of sin is death. Who you think pays you? It is God who pays. So therefore, it is God who subjects the one who sins to death. Jesus came to take bodily form so that what? He could suffer this death on our behalf. He became our substitution. And remember the whole point in all of scripture, only God can save. And then finally, the third person of the Godhead, the Holy Spirit. What does he do? He brings to us remembrance of things concerning Jesus. He brings the formation of the church. He indwells those who believe in Jesus. But nevertheless, whether Father, Son, or Holy Spirit, all are one being of God, playing, acting in different roles in the redemption of the elect. So therefore, Jesus is not some substandard God below God, as John wants us to see here. He is a hundred percent. He is completely God, all doggone mighty. That is who Jesus is. The one who has no beginning, the one who has no ending, God, and as you get to the very end, Lord, I have mercy. As you get to the very end in the book of Revelation, notice he has no flesh. He returns as he was in the beginning. But that's another teaching. Anyway, that's enough. I was getting excited. The spirit started to move me. I wanted to shout my own self. Jesus, my Lord, my God. That's what Thomas said. My Lord and my God in this very same book. That's who he is, and that's who we serve, and that's who died for us. All right, stop it. Join me next time, guys, as we complete, well, we're not going to complete it, but as we move further into the Gospel of John, dealing with the very person of Jesus and the reason for his becoming flesh. See you next time.